Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean, host. For today's exciting- <laughs> And now for something completely different. Hello friends, comrades, anyone engaged in the struggle for freedom, wherever you are, in this gigantic universe, welcome to another broadcast from Maki Raider Radio, the space in which we document the imperialist crimes and violence of the so-called Federation. I'm John, otherwise known as the Liquid Guy, and beaming in is my co-host, Ash. <laughs> hey, John. How's it going? Uh, good. Happy to be here. Happy to be broadcasting the truth once again. The the Maquis will never fall, and we will we will be liberated from the tyranny of Cardassia, the Federation, and the Dominion. <laughs> uh, and in this installment, in this installment, then of our ongoing effort to educate the galaxy about the uh, imperial imperialist colonizers of the Federation. What are we talking about today? <laughs> um, we are talking about episode six of season five of DS9, Trials and Tribulations. <laughs> um... We should we should we should start though with uh we should start with the beginning, right? The the biggest problem with uh with the Federation, with, with Star Trek, which at least uh Deep Space Nine admits, which is that the Federation uh is militarized colonization of, of the entire expanse of the of the universe, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. The, the the Federation is a formalized military body that presents itself as being a diplomatic, scientific, missionary force. Uh, but um, if any of those words are familiar to you, it's probably for historical crimes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's probably because we we know about things like, you know, the CIA and... Uh, the United States of America backing various coups throughout the history of the entire planet. Um, uh, and as this episode starts, we've, we are reminded the Federation literally has cops for every dimension of existence, including time itself. <laughs> there are time cops. There are, there are uh, people who whose job it is to to prevent time crime <laughs> and I, I think that this leads us really nicely into our, our, our like the biggest the biggest critique i think we could, we could levy against how star trek depicts the federation 
Um, because it's, you know, the, the Federation still has a police force. The Federation still has prisons, even though they, they've gone beyond the use of money. Like New Zealand is a penal colony, you know, like, like that's one of the biggest penal colonies yeah. in the Federation is in New Zealand. And it's like, we've got some problems to unpack here. And I think the root of this is that this vision of a utopia in outer space is one that tries to circumnavigate Marxism. It's trying, it's trying to navigate around left politics, but still create a utopia. So you get this weird pro-colonial, pro-military, pro-prison, anti-dialectical vision of utopia. Mm -hmm. It is, uh, what I actually like about DS9 is that this is a show that makes all of that explicit, um, and kind of exposes the ways in which, previous explorations of the federation as an idea had had refused to engage with that truth uh cisco commits war crimes uh you know there as you say new zealand is a gigantic penal colony there are um uh imperialist war wars of adventure that happen throughout the galaxy like this is what happens when you have a utopia that has not fully divested itself of the logic of American imperial capitalism. Yes, <laughs> completely. And like, I think like even, even the very existence of the New Zealand penal settlement, like this, this precludes any possible uh, a returning of the lands of New Zealand to the indigenous peoples who should rightfully be holding them. You know, it's 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 being used as a Federation prison camp. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we don't we don't know what has happened to the indigenous uh, and Maori communities of of New Zealand. Um, at this point, you know they they have presumably been absorbed into into the. Uh, uh, overall governmental control of earth um and yeah you're right this is this is a utopia that is uh i mean ds9 makes this more explicit than most track shows which is that it's a utopia of capitalist realism yet yeah, you don't have money but there's still trade and there's still uh a class-based system except now it's militarized and done by rank uh, there are still prisons. There is no worker control. Uh, this is this is even though we've got to the point of potential full automation and luxury communism for all. Um, there's st there are still these tensions. There are still these struggles that the show doesn't quite. Star Trek as an idea doesn't quite manage to move beyond. Yeah, I, th I think it's really telling that Federation life and Federation society is, as you were saying, hauntologically reminiscent of contemporary America and contemporary European civilization. You know, like, like there's not a lot of indigenous presence. I mean, like outside of Chakotay and Voyager, it's it's hard to think of many many strong examples. And there's a lot of uh, these problems where it's it's almost this this is like Fisher's capitalist realism, right? You know, the show is attempting to create a vision where humanity solved its problems, but it's it's suspiciously unaware of a lot of these problems. Yeah, and the future is always completely static. 
Mm-hmm. Right? This is the future is always there is no alternative in the Star Trek universe because apparently there's so much that we could lose. So this is how the episode starts. It starts with the time cops are turning up, whose job it is is to enforce the Federation's militarily won hegemony through time. They're there to defend the timeline. They are there as the walking embodiments of uh, of stability, of, of Federation realism. <laughs> Federation realism. <laughs> oh, okay. That's, uh, my, that's my new theoretical framework for everything is Federation realism. The idea that, that once the Federation has been instantiated, there is literally no way history could have... Not only, not only will the future never be different, history itself never could have been different once the Federation is there. Yeah, yeah, it definitely, like, like the, pres- the presence of the, the temporal prime directive implies that the pinnacle of evolution is the Federation as it presently exists, and there can be no forward momentum from that point, and there can also be no regression to a previous point. Yes, precisely. And they will defend that by force, if needs be. Which I think is a, is a really good segue into, into kind of the meat of the episode. So in this episode... Uh, Jadzia Dax, Benjamin Sisko, and a couple others from the DS9 satellite head back in time to stop a uh, Klingon spy from killing Captain Kirk during the uh, original run of the show. Yeah. (laughs) What do you think? Where do you want to begin here? (laughs) (laughs) I want to begin by by going back in time. Um, no, like I think a really good place to begin with uh, discussing this episode is just to talk about the Tribbles themselves. Okay. And I know you wanted to talk about Arnie Darwin. <laughs> okay, yes. Um, I I think it's very interesting that this show uh, manages to link itself back to a previously existing the kind of original text and it does it through the focal point of a single character uh, Arnie Darwin who sneaks aboard as someone who has managed, someone who was a Klingon spy who had been surgically altered to look like a human um, and uh, had spent a hundred years eking out uh a, an existence as a merchant after being caught by Kirk in the original show and cast into exile and ignominy by the Klingon Empire. Um, and he manages to get aboard with a uh, an orb, the Orb of Time, which sends them all back to this key meeting point in Darwin's life where he is bested by Kirk and he tries to rig the game uh, again, against Kirk, basically, and get his glorious redemption by going back into his own past. Um, so, a couple of things which are really interesting to note, which is that there's there is something to be said for this idea of being of existing almost in half a dimension, temporally speaking. Right, we can't travel backwards through time; we only exist forwards in time. And I think there is this great temptation to try and rewrite our future 
this this very intuitively it's an attractive idea right you could redeem your entire present by going back into your own past and correcting something but actually what's a much harder thing to accept is to think of ourselves as being uh able to create a future for ourselves right that's a that's uh, where is our end and so for darwin the end is behind him right he's trying to get back in order to make something better for himself so it has to rely on some external force that puts him back into time uh and this is this is on a bigger bigger scale this is an attempt for this show to tie itself back to the kind of canonical text of star trek the original series I I love this way of of framing it. Using Arnie Darwin as kind of the vehicle for the whole discussion. Um like because as as the characters of Star Trek often joke, temporal mechanics are very complicated and incredibly difficult to understand. Yeah. I and I think I think Arnie Darwin is, is 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 a great example of kind of this uh crossroads of both hauntology and a, a manifestation of capitalist realism. You know, for Arnie Darwin, it it's for his entire life, it's been easier to envision uh, a way to go back in time and change history as a way to save his future than it is for him to work towards any kind of future from the standpoint of the present. You know, a, a changed future for him only exists as a changed past. There's no way to actually which build because, a better future. Which is because this character, and I think this is a wider shared condition, sees himself as essentially without any agency. Yes, absolutely. Because to say that you can make yourself a better future is to say that in some capacity, there are forces which you can harness to change things materially around you. But to say that the only way things could have been any better now is if something was fixed in the past is to admit that you don't feel like you have any agency in the present. And there's a, there's a small example in this show that's that I think is one of my favorite uh, uh, way, ways of like looking at this or, or the ways or, like things to talk about this through, and that's in in the episode right. Um, it's uh, our characters from DS Nine don uh, original series uniforms and travel back in time to what is yep. pr- probably the most famous or at least the most iconic original series episode, uh, Trouble with Tribbles. Uh, and, and when they go back in time, uh, Worf and crew from the future encounter past Klingons. And for, yes. for all of you other Star Trek fans out there, you'll know that in the original series, Klingons didn't have forehead ridges. They were just poorly shaved Eastern European dudes. That was the Klingon style. Uh, and that's, that's pure, purely a budgetary concern. They just didn't have the money to make them look like cool space aliens. So they just looked like Eastern Europeans. And we, yep. we get this amazing line where uh, the, the people from the future are like, wait, those are Klingons? Worf, what happened? And Worf is like, we do not talk about this with outsiders. And it's this, it's this fun, cute little line, right? Because like, we, we all know that the real reason is that the show became popular. The show started making a lot of money. Their budget <laughs> increased. And so now yeah. the aliens can look like aliens and not just like poorly shaven dudes in different shirts. Right. So that's that's the real reason the Klingons look different is because we can we can make them look cool and alien like now and not just the same over and over and over again. But like because the show can't leave well enough alone, by the time we get to uh, Star Trek Enterprise, 
maybe the most forgettable Star Trek series. I don't think anybody ever talks about Enterprise. But there's, there's a two-parter in Enterprise where they actually discuss why this happened, and that's because Klingon scientists were trying to create a genetic hybrid between humans and Klingons to create like a superior race of soldiers. And so that's why you get some Klingons without forehead ridges, and then they get into the politics of like reconstructive surgery for Klingons born without ridges to give them ridges again. You know, like we see with Kor in DS9, because Kor was originally one of the mm-hmm. human-looking uh, Klingons. But, like, in in trial, Trials and tribu- Tribulations, it's this fun little line that's, that's war for winking to the audience, because we all know how silly the costuming in TOS was. But, like, mm-hmm. the show can't leave well enough alone. The show has to fill that void, right? Because you can't you can't have these gaps in your continuity and you have to continually backfill them and explore them because it's easier to mine old ideas for continuous content than it is to try and push things forward in new directions. So we keep getting reboots and retreadings and re-explorations and these little throwaway things that that in, in reality we all know the answer to this and we can just kind of accept that. We can take this as a suspension of disbelief. You know, we don't need a there were there was a genetically engineered virus that eliminated forehead ridges. And here's the complicated politics. We can just accept it. But because capitalism sucks at innovating, it just has to keep mining this old content. So we get a two parter in enterprise that partially deals with a throwaway line from earlier. Yeah, and it's 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 so lazy as well, this desire to constantly explain because we know this is what we've talked about before, right? This idea of like being totally wedded to a conception of realism. Mm-hmm. It's like we know that it's a show. The whole point of this kind of show is to provide us some cognitive distance from the way that we live now. And this is why people don't mind that in the context of Star Trek, right? Yeah. Um, and I agree with you. I really like it too. I think it's a cute. I think it's a cute and funny line and a good way of kind of explaining something without getting too bogged down in like. But what about how in this version of the universe there was this? You know, we don't need to worry about that. It's just a fun way of kind of dealing with a with a with a small writing problem. Yeah, I mean, like when you when you operate a show for over 50 years you're going to have (laughs) these little inconsistencies that pop up over time and smoothing out all of those bumps in the road is is a fool's errand and more more than a fool's errand it's a trick played against us the the people who enjoy this art and you know what the way that this that the this episode is dealing with it is it's the construction of a fictionalized historiography right Mm -hmm. the fact that this that kind of little writing detail, the great editing in this episode, the great um, use of original sets and costumes. It's designed to create a historicity for the universe in which all of this is happening. And that's why, even though this is a show which by, by contemporary standards is quite outdated and it doesn't have a massive budget, it still looks really good, this episode. For the most part. This, this episode, so I love, I love the kind of cinematography and behind the scenes of this episode. Um, because when, 
uh, like, like part of the original inspiration was Forrest Gump. And there's a lot of there's a lot of scenes in the Forrest Gump movie where uh, Tom Hanks's character is retroactively inserted into historical moments. And that was the inspiration. And a couple of the showrunners were like, there is no way that was a major Hollywood motion picture. They have access to resources we can't have access to. But then the rest of the show uh, runners just kind of like shot a test of it. And they were like, nah, we can do it. Get out of here. And, and they wind up making like what is honestly maybe my favorite <laughs> guilty pleasure episode in all of Star Trek is Trials and Tribulations. Like I, I you know, I, I, won't, I, won't, I won't give it errors and call it seamless, but like how they insert characters into the original series, the costuming, the sets, it all feels natural. It feels like it works. And you get a lot of like. Yeah, the, the, that fictional history they mm-hmm. make works. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and yeah, there are a couple of moments where it doesn't look incredible, but like that's not what this is about. We don't need it to look amazing. We just need to feel like it could be. It's convincing. Yeah, and it's 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 kind of a meta text too, right? Because like this is a, a deeply nostalgic episode for everybody who ever would be like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to have been on the set of the original series? You know, and like that's that's Benjamin oh, Sisko's whole motivation. Absolutely. This episode is like. He's just like, oh, damn, wouldn't it be cool to just shake Captain Kirk's hand? You know, and so like like this is it's it's a celebration of Star Trek as as a body of work that I think is a really successful yeah. way to do that without falling into a lot of like the negative trappings of nostalgia. Yes, I, I completely agree. It's unashamedly nostalgic, but it's it is because it's created the idea of there being a, a genuine history it doesn't feel like a false nostalgia yes it's honest it's honest about what it is it's honest that like wouldn't it just be the dorkiest and most awesome experience ever to to have been on that original set and get to sneak back yeah. in time and be like uh, uh yes mr spock and just like walk away or something like it's it's wearing its heart on its sleeve, and that's what makes Trials and Tribulations so endearing from kind of like a, a filmic and storytelling perspective. It is deeply endearing. It's deeply endearing. But do you know do you know what's not deeply endearing? Tribbles. <laughs> Let's talk about tribbles. So, Let's talk about the mortal <laughs> enemy of the Klingon Empire. Tribbles. So, so I guess if you've if you've been living under a rock, or, or maybe you don't know what a tribble is, uh, they're they're just a, a tiny ball of fuzz, and and each tribble is born <laughs> pregnant uh, with with another tribble, and and they reproduce like lightning. They get everywhere. They they breed constantly to the point where they almost destroy <laughs> the starship Enterprise. <laughs> yes, that is true. <laughs> and and they're this kind of intractable problem. That that just winds up solving itself in the show on accident, and yeah, they're they're the the mortal enemy of the Klingon Empire. Worf Worf goes into detail about how the Klingons waged war and exterminated the Tribble homeworld, and they even went as far as to create a genetically engineered super predator known as the the Glomer. It's this kind of like squid looking thing that is the perfect predator of Tribbles. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and of course, Tribbles notoriously do not like Klingons, uh, for what should by now be fairly obvious reasons. Yes. <laughs> um, but the, it's the reasons why 
Tribbles, uh, Klingons did this that I think are interesting. Um, and they did it because, because for them, the Tribbles were an ecological problem. Uh, and I was wondering, what do you think about Klingon ecology? <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. Like, like we, we wrote down in the notes here, the Glomer approach to environmental management. <clears throat> and it's like, 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 it reminds me of that, <laughs> that, like that classic, uh, Simpsons gag where it's like, uh, okay. Like, uh, principal Skinner is like, oh yeah, we'll kill the lizards with a bunch of snakes and then we'll kill the snakes with a bunch of gorillas and then the gorillas will die off in the winter. And it's like per- a perfect, right. Plan. Yeah. There's nothing that can go wrong with this. Um, but it, but I think like it's it's posing some really interesting and thought provoking questions that tie back into a lot of what we were discussing earlier, with the kind of like militarized mm-hmm. colonialist approach of the Federation, and you know like in the original series the the Klingons were at war with the Federation. It wasn't until Curzon Dax negotiated the Kittimer Accords, which we all should know. <laughs> That, that yeah. these know your that these two groups became aligned, but they were never truly that different to begin with. You know, the Klingons are a warrior race, and then they believe in honor, and they're physically different, but they're not inherently incompatible. You know, there are Klingon human children, and it's just like, there you go. You know, it's it's there's there's not a lot of uh, discursive space between the two groups, and I think that makes this approach really interesting because we never actually deal with tribbles you know because i think it raises too complicated of a question and this is a question that comes up in star trek very often and it's i think one of the most interesting things that happens right um i think the the next gen crystalline entity is like my favorite example of this because the crystalline entity just kind of goes around destroying whole civilizations but that's just its life cycle and so you have this really complicated question where there is a being who naturally just eats planets what do you do about that? Because it has a right to exist and you can't interfere with it because that would interfere with the prime directive yeah. and the tribbles exist in a similar space. Like they will wipe out entire civilizations if you give them the chance, but to wipe out the triples in exchange is also deeply problematic. Yeah, because it, it's the triple nature literally uh, is just to consume and to breed. And to expand and to 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 be something greater. So this this there is this kind of how do you how do you reconcile with that? How do you what what do you do? Well, I think I, I think like uh, post colonial analysis is kind of like the the framework through which to think about this. Because when Worf says that there's a triple home world, which logically, of course, there would be, like mm-hmm. the the implication there is that there is a world in which tribbles naturally exist and, and they can't be destroying that world. They, they yes. can't be running over it and completely annihilating it. Otherwise there wouldn't be tribbles. You know, they, they have to be in some kind of ecological balance in, in that world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Completely. And that, that means that there's a natural environment for tribbles, a natural way for them to exist, a, a way that's in some kind of equilibrium. <clears throat> and that, that as, perspective as kind of fractured and as strange as that might be, yeah, and then like that that perspective is kind of beyond the imaginary space offered by the Federation because the Federation isn't super concerned with ecology, you know? Like the, that's not the no. Federation's wheelhouse. <laughs> it doesn't seem like I think I think that's I think that's a fair 
point. Um, which is why the ending of this episode is so interesting, right? <laughs> How this episode ends. Because, okay, so long story short, they make it back to the they make it back to the present of DS Nine. Uh, the time cops give them a, a, a ticking off and go, I probably would have done the same thing if I was there with James T. Kirk. Um, and it turns out they brought some tribbles back from the past, back to the future with them. Um, and so it, the the episode ends just with a shot of the promenade on DS9 covered in tribbles. And it's like, okay, well, we know how the Klingons would handle this. How is the Federation... How does the Federation deal with Tribbles? What do you think? What do you think happens when the episode is is done? Oh yeah, yeah. I have no idea because it, it's 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 a comical, lighthearted episode, right? So so it's not it's not yeah. it was never meant to stray this far into discourse. And at the 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 very final scene of the episode is we're overlooking the promenade on DS Nine, and it's just tri- Tribbles everywhere. People with armfuls of Tribbles. It's it's the same it's the same kind of setup we have in the, the trouble with Tribbles. Is that the trouble with triples is that they get everywhere and they break everything. <laughs> yeah. And it's like in, in the trouble with triples, the problem solves itself. You know, it's it, it accidentally is cured. And I think like we we can't know the horrible truth of how this problem is solved. Right. Um, because if there would be a happy ending for the triples, we'd probably get it in the episode. You know, we, we'd probably get Bashir yeah. saying like, oh, I've. I've created a serum that stops this problem or something, but in yeah, that uh, that means that they they don't um, reproduce at an exponential rate or something <laughs> like that. That would be that would be the uh, like like maybe a better answer. But the fact that it ends on such a, a lighthearted cliffhanger, the implication is that we we take the Klingon solution and we we exterminate yeah, and thousands and thousands of them. Space. Yeah. I have okay, so there's a really good book called Our Aesthetic Categories um, on the zany, the cute, and the interesting, and tribbles are cute. So the question becomes, what is the function of that cuteness? And I think this is precisely it. The function of that kind of cuteness is to stop us asking the kind of question of how does the Federation deal with tribbles. And the way that the Federation deals with them is probably by murdering a whole bunch of these sentient creatures. Right? <laughs> that's, al- that's, that's almost certainly how it goes. But because Tribbles are cute, we're not really supposed to ask that kind of question. That's the, that's the aesthetic function of cuteness. Um, so it functions within the logic of the show, of course, but it also functions within the structure of the show to get us to stop asking awkward questions about our so-called heroes. In, entirely. And, and in that sense, triples become synecdoche for all of the problems of the Federation. You know, the, these are... Yes, absolutely. The, absolutely. I would completely yes, agree. Yes, the, these, are, these are questions that we cannot ask because the entire house of cards is built on top of a single triple. Come, yeah, it would just come... <laughs> The utopia of DS9 is built upon the 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 now deceased <laughs> of of billions of dead tribbles. Oh man. See this is this is where this is where all of New Trek should have gone. New 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 Trek should just be like 
Like like the Maquis <laughs> have teamed up with a bunch of like Tribble Resistance Raiders or something. <laughs> um. <laughs> so this is this is okay. But my final kind of point here is that this is why, if anything, I think the Klingon response is slightly more. It well, at the very least, it's honest. Firstly, they see th- th- their their kind of galactic ecology sees Klingons and Tribbles as somehow being entwined. There's a mutual co-relationship happening mm-hmm. there, and it's handled in the most Klingon way possible, of course. Um, but all the Federation does is, oh, they're cute. Don't think about what we're going to do to them. Yes. At least the Klingon, at least the Klingons are honest about it, and go. These are a these are a threat, not to environment, but to the ecology of which we are a part. And I think that I think that kind of speaks to what the Klingons are on on kind of a, a metaphoric level, right? The, the Klingons are just metaphorized humanity, you know, like like mm-hmm. the all, all of the things that Klingons do. It, particularly the bad things, the things that we're meant to think are bad. Like they, they, they just conquer, they just go to war, you know, they, they kill each other to claim power in situations. That's, that's what we do. You know, the thing, the thing that makes, yeah, welcome to yeah, the thing that makes Klingons different is that they're, they're doing this built on a rich cultural tradition that is premised on a system of honor and respect and strength. And, and humanity does this premised on a system of greed, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I think we have outed ourselves as Klingon Empire sympathizers. <laughs> we're both we're the Arnie Darvins of our own podcast. <laughs> um, any final points that you wanted to bring out? Uh, uh, long, long live the emperor. Uh, may we, may we honor the memory and spirit of Kalis. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, until, until next time, everyone, uh, may, may your goblet of blood wine, uh, always be full and may you find a good day to die. you wonderful lovers out there in podcast land welcome to the very first episode of our new spin-off show rom communism where we discuss the highlights the lowlights all the lights of romantic comedies through the lens of left politics how's it going john uh you know what i i'm feeling good i'm feeling i'm feeling energized i'm ready to do this we're going to talk about maybe the most powerful cultural form in mainstream cinema um, we're going to talk about we're going to talk about romance. We're going to talk about love. It's going to be great. Oh, love! Love is in the air. Can you feel it? Can you feel it out there in listener land? I really can. I really the can. Warmth, the warmth of my heartbeat. Our arms around you. Just love blossoming. 
So, so let's let's keep let's keep this let's keep this uh, uh, love fest rolling here. What movie are we talking about today? We are talking about uh, a film widely regarded as a landmark achievement in uh, romantic comedies. Uh, something that is uh, produced by a writer director who is seen as, you know, um, a, a practitioner par excellence of this form. We are talking about Nora Ephron's "You've Got Mail." You're far too kind to this movie. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be an interesting episode. Most assuredly, but I know I know there was a little a little something you wanted to read a little a little love letter, if you will, to uh, to Nora Ephron's "You've Got Mail." <laughs> the French communist philosopher Alain Badiou writes that to love is to struggle beyond solitude with everything in the world that can animate existence. This world where I see for myself the fount of happiness my being with someone else brings. I love you becomes in this world there is the fount you are for my life. In the water from this fount I see our bliss. But in contrast, what if love is not to struggle or to find ourselves in the desires and happiness of the other and in, in that finding to find something beyond the alienation and atomized subjectivity of late capitalism. What if instead love is to be subject to shady business practices, to be lied to constantly, to be stalked, to be abused and belittled, and in the end to settle in a park because there is nowhere else to go? What if instead of heeding a call from the universe, that shows us that out there there is the possibility of a spiritual, almost transcendent meeting of two beings. Instead, all we are given is male. <laughs> oh, well done. Uh, that was amazing. <laughs> Not a patch on your work. Not a patch, but I, I'm heavily inspired. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that was so much fun. <laughs> uh but yeah, we're talking we're talking about uh the iconic You've Got Mail. Uh so so I know one of the things we really wanted to talk about, um, as we want to, as we love to talk about on rom communism, we want to talk about love. Yeah. So so uh where do you want to start? I well I want to start with an example that Alain Badiou uses, and he he says that he's a romantic at heart. Um and he says that like the incredible thing about it is that love or literally to fall in love is a kind of moment where the universe around you kind of changes. The, 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 the example he gives is that old cliche, right? You're walking down the road uh, and maybe you trip, you fall over something, you, sl you slip on a banana skin and you, you land on the floor and someone rushes over to you and holds out their hand and your eyes meet and you meet in that moment. And... Badia says that actually increasingly technology is trying to give us that moment of meeting, but without the risk of us falling. It's trying to give us love without the fall into it. And I think that's a really interesting argument. I don't know if I, I, I buy it completely, but 
I absolutely do think there's something to this idea that like the reason that that uh the rom-com is powerful is because there is something uh that is universalized about this 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 idea of falling of of meeting of connection with somebody um that it's dressed up in kind of heteronormative and often deeply racist assumptions about who those others might be is is kind of beside the point here love is about the moment of realizing the world that you existed in is something richer and deeper and far more uh strange and wonderful than you might previously have assumed i think that's a phenomenal way of putting it <laughs> it's a shame that none of that happens in this movie uh, yeah and none of that happens in this film no, none of it all right all right <laughs> So, so the, the the setup for this movie, if you've never seen You've Got Mail and you're not kind of aware of its cultural impact, um, this is this is part of the uh, a sweeping virality that is uh, the Nora Ephron cinematic universe. These are saccharine movies, completely undeserving of their position in society. Uh, this one in particular features Meg Ryan playing a character named Kathleen. She's the owner and proprietor of a uh, children's bookstore. And Joe Fox, the the lead corporate takeover executive at Fox Books, uh, they meet in an online message board and send each other emails under assumed identities with the rule that they can't share specifics about their lives so they don't know who each other is. Mm-hmm. Throughout the course of the film, uh, Joe Fox and Kathleen start butting heads as Joe Fox attempts to take over control of her business and will effectively force her out of business so he can continue his corporate takeover of bookstores. Um, and then uh, they they fall in love because this movie hates uh, women. <laughs> yeah, let's let's just let's just put this let's let's be very clear, like right right off the bat. You know what you know you know what people say about about Marxists, about leftists, about communists. We like to kind of hide what we really think. We're duplicitous. That's that's the slander that's thrown against us. Let's be super clear. This is a garbage film that is virulently misogynistic. Um, yes. Uh, Joe Fox is an absolute piece of shit. Um, I, 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 there are moments in this film where I genuinely gasped at the fact that we are supposed to, in the framing and structure of the film, supposed to find this charming. There, there, are, there are so many scenes where we are supposed to see what he's doing as as heartwarming and fun and loving, but to, it's the most vile stuff in the world. Like, I'll never get over the, the scene with the cashier, right? Uh, uh, the, the, the setup is, is uh, uh, for, for, all of you, for all of you youths out there who maybe have never experienced this, a million years ago, there were things called cash-only lanes at grocery stores <laughs> where you could only pay with cash. Uh, Meg Ryan on, has accidentally walked into a cash-only lane, she gets to the register, and instead of doing the fucking decent thing, which is just waiting in line at, at the next lane so she can use her credit card, she makes a big fuss about it, and then Joe Fox's character steps over, belittles, degrades, and humiliates the cashier until she relents. Yeah. And allows Meg Ryan to use the the, the credit card. Like, And it's like, it's played for laughs, it's played as like a funny heartwarming scene, but it is just so fucking classist, racist, and disgusting Yep, absolutely. I mean, the the classic example, classic cinematic example of um, basically trying to convince somebody that they can they can't trust their own intuitions is the uh, the old classic film Gaslight. 
It's where we get the term gaslighting from. Um, and this film is an exercise in gaslighting. So uh, as Ash pointed out, they meet on these chat rooms under pseudonyms. However, piece of shit, abuser Joe Fox realizes, sees through their pseudonyms first, which gives him an enormous amount of power over Kathleen, who is still naively assuming that this person is, is out there and is a kind of good person. Um, and I, the, the scene that kind of makes me so just kind of disgusted at this film is where in the chat rooms or via email, they've arranged to meet for the first time. So Kathleen is sitting in this cafe um, and the person that she's been writing to doesn't turn up, but Joe Fox does. And it's just awful the way that he treats her. <laughs> and he does this constantly throughout the film. He is he uses this kind of basically a sock puppet account to try and to try and like have some power and influence over her. He is just uh, a liar for the vast majority of the film. And we're missing out the biggest thing, which he uses his enormous socioeconomic power to literally drive her out of business. And, and I, I can't stress this enough, right? At the point they're meeting up, Joe Fox knows that the person he's been writing to online is Kathleen, his, his corporate enemy. And instead of going in, instead of just walking away or going into the cafe and being like, hey, it's me. You know, he, he goes into the cafe and he's like, oh, your date's not going to appear, is he? And then he, he is just the most petulant fucking child for the entire experience. Oh, it's awful. Just and, awful. And this, this film is so fucking misogynistic. Kathleen, played by Meg Ryan, never has any goals. She doesn't have any agency. She's just floating around, being bounced around by Joe Fox, waiting to fall in love with him. As I said, as I said before we started recording, she's not given a character, she's given a haircut. Yeah. That's exactly. that's all the script can do for her. So uh, uh, let's. Uh, so we've talked about how Joe Fox is a horrible love interest, a terribly abusive scumbag, and, and this is this is for the standard of, of romantic comedies. In many romantic comedies, the the male love interest is a terrible bastard, like like someone who you just normally don't want to fall in love with. And there's a lot of like literary tropes playing into this, right? There's the taming of the rapist and kind of like all of these iconic literary themes that go on in here but in this one it, none of it works at all like joe fox is just awful and here's the thing here's the thing right the classic example here is rochester right yes, that's the classic example but it's well established right that rochester's end which is his um he he is no longer handsome he's burned he's he's disabled and he's blinded in the fire um that is a that's a that is a, a a humbling of the the of his heroic status, right? He can be dismissive and belittling to Jane because he is her social superior. He loses that superiority, and that allows them an ending. Which, if you read the ending of Jane Eyre, it's actually it's actually a genuinely very beautiful kind of closing oh, yeah. to the novel because it allows them a communion a communion of equality. To put it as Bronte probably would have. Um, here, none of that happens. Like, the power differentials are still in place. He doesn't apologize. He doesn't learn anything. He doesn't change. He is not um, reduced in status in any way whatsoever. And we're supposed to go, yeah, yeah, good, 
good for you, girl. <laughs> like, it's like, Meg, and like, run! <laughs> run, right? Get out of there, Kathleen. And like when you when you and I were talking about this, I like and and it's not that like all mainstream rom coms are this this distinctly bad. Like I was I was talking about Stranger Than Fiction, my like all time favorite mainstream rom com. And like in that one, like Will Ferrell plays our our male love interest lead protagonist, and like he goes from being this like ultra strict uh, uh, tax auditor who who follows the the uh, like like tax law to the letter. He has no personality, no social life, and and in order in order to like express his feelings for the woman he's fallen in love with, he learns he learns things. He learns how to play the guitar. He grows as a person. He realizes that you know tax law is kind of bullshit, and you can flub the numbers a little to to help her save her business. You know he grows. Uh, uh, and like oh my god, I'm so happy about it. Rochester too. It's a good example. Of this. I'm sorry. I'm like I'm like at my wits end with how much i hate joe fox <laughs> and, and yeah and also like the what we're asking for here is not like a major thing this is a kind of basic character point about writing right you want any kind of story depends upon character shifts right otherwise why why are we with these these people on on their journey through the plot you want you want to see change not only does he start a toxic, abusive, gaslighting liar. That's how he ends, right? And, and the same the, because the same for Meg Ryan. sorry, just like because oh, good, go on, yeah. this film is incredibly badly written. Yes, uh, Nora, Nora Ephron is a hack, and, and I think that that is something that nobody talks about enough. Yeah, like Nora Ephron is bad at writing. Like there, there, there is no story, and you've got mail. Like, like they're, they're, the characters do not progress through anything. Right, uh, uh, Kathleen stays who she is at the beginning of the movie, right? Right, timid, uh, you know, you know, not in control of the world around her, just kind of coasting. Uh, Joe Fox stays an abusive corporate asshole. All the peripheral characters, uh, the the only change happens, and we'll get into this when we, when we start talking about Frank Navasky, the true hero of this movie. <laughs> king, absolute king. <laughs> I think I think it's time to move on into specifically one of the reasons why this movie is so bad, and that's because this is a great example of uh, uh, petty bourgeoisie propaganda. Yes, absolutely. Let's let's kind of start with the debate. How would you define the petty bourgeoisie? So, so kind of like classically in left politics, you've got the bourgeoisie, which are the owners and masters of capital. Right, like these these are the people who own companies and businesses and have vast fortunes and vast social wealth. You know, like like Bill Bill Gates is bourgeoisie. Jeff Bezos is bourgeoisie. Right? You know, the you know, Hollywood celebrities are all bourgeoisie, like like these are great examples. The the petty bourgeoisie fall in between. Right? They're they're a way for the true bourgeoisie to mask what they're doing and to give people the false illusion that they could climb an allegedly extant social ladder. Mm-hmm. the the petty bourgeoisie are people who own like a car dealership or like your local quote-unquote restaurateur who owns like four restaurants in your town or something like that like like these are the petty bourgeoisie they don't have anywhere near they're they're, they're closer to you than they are to jeff bezos but they're nevertheless living and acting in, in a way that is identical to the bourgeoisie and in favor of them yes absolutely these are what we'd call the 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 lower middle classes uh they are marked by a distinct aesthetic conservatism a conservative politics a lack of imagination 
um, which I think are all present in this film. For a film about culture, it does not care about books in the slightest, um, in a way that is actually deeply distasteful. Um, the the great kind of critic of the petty bourgeoisie uh, in kind of literary or philosophical works is Kierkegaard, right? So Kierkegaard says that the petty bourgeois is spiritless, devoid of imagination, as the petty bourgeois always is, he lives within a certain orbit of trivial experiences as to how things come about, what is possible, what usually happens, no matter whether he is a tapster, uh, a barman, or the prime minister. This is the way the petty bourgeois has lost himself and has lost God. <laughs> There's no better description of Joe Fox. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, this, this is for me where the movie completely fails because if you watch the director's commentary you can uh listen to nora efron talking about how this movie is about the kind of unique spirit of new york new york city is kind of classically known as as being this like sprawling maze of independent shops tiny little restaurants tiny little corner stores tiny little neighborhood grocery shops all kinds of cultural identities merging together intermingling and then you have you have like starbucks you have fox books coming in and forcing out all of these all of this identity and replacing it with one capitalist hegemony mm -hmm. and and Nora Ephron is allegedly against this in the movie like she's making this movie about corporations being bad but the but there's never there's no consequence right nothing nothing bad ever happens from what Joe Fox does and in, in, in fact it liberates Kathleen to pursue the things that she maybe wanted to but we never really learned about her character to begin with yeah precisely like the, the, this is a really the important movie... point um, because and I think this underscores that Efron's point in here is borderline incoherent which is that this is a product of the 90s and the 90s was marked by this kind of anti-capitalist capitalism yeah oh yes. everywhere is an independent place uh, but we all go and get our coffee at Starbucks and really, isn't it great? It's like the whole point of this film is that corporate takeovers are an undeniably good thing. That's the whole message of this yes. film, if you look at it from an economic point of view. Why? Because it frees Kathleen to go off and be an entrepreneur and to, to, to build her own career. She's stepping out into the unknown and making something new. This film is absolutely a kind of hymn of praise to the creative destruction that would reach its apotheosis in the absolute evils of something like facebook no completely and like we never like all of the people who work at kathleen's independent bookstore have no consequences from it being shut down everybody just kind of like gets another job or like you know the old woman who works there retires kathleen just goes on to other work there's never any of the real world consequences it like doesn't, people doesn't one of them say healthcare. oh no i'm gonna have to move to brooklyn into a rent controlled oh, apartment yeah yeah yeah, it's, yeah, and the only consequences, of course, are, are people being uh, horribly racist and classist, which the entire movie as a whole is. Yeah, absolutely. In, it, in a way that I would say is irredeemably so. Um, yeah, the, I think you're completely right. This is, you know, Marxists have always thought the petty bourgeois would, would, would lend a veneer of respectability to fascism. Uh, Wilhelm Reich writes about this, Berthold Brecht writes about this, and broadly were proven correct. Um, you know, this lack of imagination is comes up in the fact that working in a bookstore, nobody seems to really care about books in the slightest, other than as economic units. Um, and I think the racism and classism is incredibly important to talk about. And I know you had a couple of 
specific examples you wanted to bring up? Yeah, we already talked about the cashier, but I, I really wanted to talk about a character we never see on screen. Uh, there, there's there's a scene where uh, Joe Fox is trapped in an elevator for a short amount of time for no particular reason other than to let Tom Hanks be smug. But like Tom, Tom Hanks calls to security or the front desk or whoever answers the phone inside the elevator. <clears throat> and it's it's someone named Juan. But like Tom Hanks is like so vulgar and condescending he was like, oh, just just call 911 and tell the fire department we're stuck in the elevator. And then there's a moment of silence and he goes, yes, 911, the fire department. Like, like uh. is, is just this complete bubbling fool. And like at every every moment that this movie can possibly take to be racist and classist towards towards these kind of like frontline soldiers of the working poor, the movie takes that chance. And it's all, it's never, these, these aren't meant to be, in, in a better movie, these would have been examples about how Joe Fox is, is an asshole and his character is terrible and he needs to learn and grow. But in this movie, they're, they're, it's, just, it's just letting Tom Hanks mug for the camera and be charming and funny is what the movie thinks he's doing. Yeah, it's, it's just, and to be honest, this ties into, into a bigger issue, which, is, which I think we'll get onto, which is, I, I kind of think this film is quite fascist. Deeply, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, it it has nothing but disgust for anyone who isn't basically a corporate executive, and it will only tolerate people who are not white if they can be used as like either kind of menial help and treated abominably, or as like your assistant. That's that's all. That's all they can be. But also, the, the politics of this film are, are so bizarre um there is there is the there is the one kind of throwaway reference to uh it's birdie isn't it the the uh older woman who works in the shop yes who talks about how back in the day and in her youth she went to, to spain and she fell in love um and they go oh well who 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 was it that, you know you fell for i'm not going to tell you she says but he was very important and he ended up running the whole country and another character works out that we're clearly talking about General Franco, the fasc- yeah. the fascist dictator. What the fuck was that? And go <laughs> and and this character is like, hmm, that seems weird. You know, when you go to Spain, you, you, she because it's um, Kathleen is talking to them and it goes, you know, that's just what you do when you go to Spain. Because no, what you do when you go to Spain is you spend too much money on a leather jacket. You don't fall in love with a fascist dictator. And, like, that could be a really, you know, there would be a really important moment where you could examine that and go, right, how do, how do you love and politics intersect, right? What does that mean? How do, you, how do you unpick that? How do you live with that ethical responsibility? Um, but the film just glosses over it. And the only character who even raises kind of doubts about it goes, oh, you're missing the point. Isn't it sweet that they've had this experience in their youth? And it's like, no, this is just apologia for fascism. This movie, this movie is, by and large, insufferable and devoid of love, which is a shame that we're covering it on Rom Communism, a podcast solely about love. But there is one character who is a little lovely. Um, let's talk about our personal hero, Frank Navasky. Uh, the the undisputed best thing in this film, he, hands down, hands down. The only reason this movie, it's him and um, 
El- Elwood Elwards. This is probably Elwood Elwards' second best role, mm-hmm. uh, next to the the little Big Mom episode, and I think season eleven of The Simpsons, where he says, "You've got leprosy." Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, Frank is Kathleen's uh, partner um, at the start of the film. He's a he's a uh, an intellectual columnist type uh, who talks about Heidegger and Foucault. Um, this is another thing that makes me think this film is quite fascist, is that he's set up as, he's introduced as being the foremost leading expert on Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. And everyone goes, oh, what a weird thing to care about. Julius mm-hmm. and Ethel Rosenberg were two people who were imprisoned uh, and killed under suspicion of being communist spies. Um, they were posthumously exonerated. And I'm, I'm sort of like, this is an incredibly important thing to try and keep alive, right? A, a, a colossal miscarriage of justice that's tied up in things like Jewish identity and leftist politics and cultural memory. And this film just goes, uh, what a weirdo <laughs> talking about these people that nobody cares about. Um, and he's also deeply suspicious of technology. Yes, this is the thing that I need to talk about when it comes to Frank Navasky's character. Let's talk about Frank and technology. What do you what do you think about his technophobia? So th- this is one of the things that, that completely lends itself to your reading of this movie as kind of proto-fascist, and this movie is 100% in support of capitalism. Uh, so throughout the movie, uh, a lot of people refer to Frank as a Luddite, and, and they do so disparagingly. They say he's a Luddite, he hates technology. Uh, the Luddites uh, were a secret oath-based uh, political organization, a proto-union, if you will, mm-hmm. Yep. in the early 1800s in England. Um, this, is, this is when uh, kind of industrial technology is starting to take over um, the textile industry, right? The Luddites were workers that were saying, hey, as these machineries are coming in to the textile industry, they're displacing us, right? We're, we're not learning how to work textiles anymore. We're learning how to operate these machines. We're becoming obsolete. Mm-hmm. This is the same struggle that workers are facing today that the Luddites were aware of, right? The Luddites used direct action to sabotage these textile machines as a way to hold on to, to their stake in the economy. Like, like the, the Luddites were left, like, in a lot of respects. Like, and the reason why, or one of the reasons why Luddite has become, like, slang for, like, a technophobe who's not with the times is because that's a way of us forgetting labor history, mm-hmm. right? And like you, you've got Frank and Navasky, who is kind of like uh, everyone else around him in the movie thinks he's a joke. Yeah, but in fact, he's the only character who's even remotely serious about the world around him. Yeah, abso- even if his absolutely. his way of expressing that seriousness is a little goofy. Um. You know, he 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 says he said he, because the thing the thing the thing that annoys me about this film, and the reason that I sympathise with him as a character is because he's sincere, and this film is deeply cynical, and thinks sincerity is yes. something of a, of a joke. Like it's supposed to be funny when Kathleen says, "Oh, when Ruth Messenger was running for um, mayor of New York against Giuliani, I didn't vote. I went and got a manicure instead." That's supposed to be a joke. It's like, are you serious? Um, my favorite line in the film comes right at the beginning where he looks at Kathleen's laptop and goes, you think it's your friend? It's not. And walks out. Everyone kind of makes fun of him because he has a thing for typewriters because he thinks of them as a kind of elegantly designed machine. Um, but they're also inefficient but and they're not these networked objects 
of kind of mediation. Um, so yeah, it, Frank is right, and there is there are, there is a kind of moment where you see what this film could be if it had a core of like emotional maturity and respect, right? And it's that scene between Kathleen and Frank, uh, which is just after they get out of the movie. You want to talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the the movie is set up where Frank and Kathleen are a couple, and Joe also has a partner, and they 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 each live with their respective partners. But uh, Kathleen and Joe are having this emotional affair with each other. The very first scene in the movie is. It's it's brilliantly shot. Like the cinematography in that first scene is great, but like, um, it's Frank leaving to go to work, and Kathleen is like spying on him as he's walking out. She's like waiting for him to to just be gone down the block, and then she's hopping on her computer to continue her like illicit affair with uh, uh, Joe Fox over email, and it's like one. So like the the, the grounding of this is, uh, Kathleen is unable to communicate herself emotionally with her partner. She's immature and she's childish, and so is Joe Fox. Like, like there, there, there's an air of abusiveness to what's going on here because we find out later that like Frank, Frank, kind of knew. Yeah. Right. Like Frank is like, yeah, like okay, like there's there's somebody else isn't there, and like like this is the scene where they you know after they they have that tense moment in the movie theater together, they break up because they realize they're not a good couple. They both realize that they have somebody else on the side, you know, and that their relationship was falling apart, and like. Frank's emotional maturity here is the only bit of emotional maturity we see in the entire movie. <laughs> yeah, because this is there's no there's no emotional blowout. There's no there's no yelling at each other. Just go, hey, this isn't working, you know. And they mm-hmm. even they even kind of laugh together, and it's clear that yeah. they still kind of care about one another. But there's this moment of emotional maturity where they go, actually, let's recognize our desires and the basic fact of we should, you know, I, I think Kathleen even says oh, but we should be so good together. And it's like, well, yeah, but sometimes that isn't enough or it isn't what's needed. Um, I, I actually think that scene is really well done. Yeah, it's, it's a really good scene. It's a shame that the rest of the movie is there. <laughs> <laughs> and like, and like the, the thing, the thing that's really fucking frustrating about this is like, you want to contrast Frank and Joe. Because these are Kathleen's our protagonist, and these are her love interests, right? And and so we're compelled to draw some kind of comparison between. And Joe is a lying, manipulative abuser who doesn't actually care about anyone around him, and everything is conquest for him. Uh, uh, Frank is perhaps out of touch, perhaps a little overbearing, but he's incredibly honest. He's earnest, and he just wants to help the world around him, even if he's a little bumbling in his attempts to do so. And we can't help but then read the movie as Kathleen just being entirely duped by this suit mm-hmm. and and losing a, a relationship that maybe wasn't right for her, but was infinitely superior to the one she walks out of the movie with. Yeah. I, and, and like I say, the, the message of this film is that corporate takeovers are good. Uh, emotional affairs are fine. AOL is going to liberate you. Um, yeah. And uh, really, your your small business deserves to be closed. Oh god! In, in, in this movie, that's like like oh, this is just the most awful fucking film. Nora, Nora Ephron's like uh, 
plot that's supposedly about how bad corporate takeover and the corporate poisoning of our culture is in a movie that is like nothing but a montage of AOL shots in the outside of a Starbucks. Yeah, utterly disgusting levels of product Wall-to-wall placement. Wall-to-wall product placement in this movie. That's all it is. It's just a vehicle for to sell AOL stock. It's lunacy. I, 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 I'm... There is one thing that I was thinking about, and this is maybe a thing to close on. Um, let's historicize for a second. In the very late 90s, there is another force that's already at work here. So in the real world, Borders was a huge deal, right, at the time, because that's what Fox Books is based on. It's based on Borders. Oh, yeah. Um, but there was another force that was already at work run by one Jeff Bezos. Amazon started using these same technologies of connection to fundamentally destroy the model of book retail that is held up as the great example of capitalism working flawlessly. Right? If, if we were to see a sequel to this film that's set now, Fox Books are out of business. He's lost all of his money. Uh, and the, the one that's probably done the best out of this will be Kathleen. Because that shop could have survived because people will start to recognize the dangers of homogeneity, the false promises uh, that we've seen develop from that naive utopianism, that naive techno-capitalist ideology that has absolutely decimated the kind of life uh, and intellectual life and cultural ability to kind of communicate and even just for writers to make a living. So... The only thing that gives me comfort about this film is knowing that in the modern day, Joe Fox is uh, broke and has lost his fortune and has lost all of his stores because that is the very least that this awful person deserves. (laughs) Well, and with that, uh, thank you. Thank you for joining us uh, for the very first episode of our spinoff show, Rom Communism. Uh, Going forward, we uh, will definitely be discussing movies that have more to do with love and less to do with terrible appraisals of late 90s corporate culture. On the 2nd of November 1975, the Italian filmmaker and political revolutionary Pier Paolo Pasolini was found murdered at the beach in Ostia in Italy. Five decades later, the identity of his killers is still unknown. Was he killed by the mob, by extortionists, or is the real story of his death far more sinister? Find out as we unravel the story of an extraordinary life and a mysterious death in The Pasolini Files.
nunca distrattamente abbandonato l'occhio sotto cappiello ha nascosto ma ninta sa che bavarai sato poco ci scanne stelle caso asciuto Welcome, welcome everyone to the first episode of the Pasolini Files, our new, our new podcast. We're, we're leaving Horror Vanguard behind, and we're taking on a much more serious and much more somber topic. It is really exciting to, to be spending some time talking about a vital cultural figure in the history of 20th century film and literature. Um, and we wanted to start this episode by... Just thinking a little bit about the film work of Pier Paolo Pasolini. Ash, where would we where 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 would you like to begin? Maybe maybe for listeners who are not familiar with Pasolini, you could take a little bit of time to maybe contextualize this great auteur's work. If you're familiar with Pier Paolo Pasolini's cinematography in the year 2020, it's probably because one of the hosts of Chapo Trap House tweeted out a screenshot of the movie Sallow a couple months ago. Uh, Pasolini's work is considered uh, critically and artistically important as a uh, milestone of that period of Italian cinema. But outside of that, it's, it's not very popularly known. Uh, we should probably start our conversation with, then, the most infamous of his titles, Sallow, or 120 Days of Sodom. Uh, I mean, this is this is some pretty strong stuff, folks. So, um, how would you describe Sallow for people who have never seen it before? Sallow is an intense movie. It's meant to be a jarring depiction of the slide uh, that happens when liberal governments descend into fascism. The horrifying images we see on the screen of torment, psychosexual violence, all, all of humanity's ills, it's meant to reflect our own shedding of our standards of, of the goodness that supposedly lives in our society as we descend from a perceptively normal world into something unrecognizable. And I think with Sallow, we can put this into a historical genealogy. of uh, We can connect Sallow and Pasolini's work to the uh, uh, mystical, psychosexual dramatics of uh, Georges Bataille, um, and of course going further back to the Marquis de Sade. Because there is this connection, I think, in Pasolini's work, and you can tell me if you disagree, um, of a profane on the one hand, and an almost transcendent or sacred on the other. And this violence reaches sort of almost ludicrous proportions. You know, there is a there's a sort of intensity to it that wouldn't be out of place in a in a scene from Justine or one of the other Marquis de Sade tales. It does fit perfectly into this history, and it also lines up very well with uh, Pasolini's other work. Um, we have Theorem from 1968, we have The Gospel According to St. Matthew. We have The Decameron. All of these films play on a lot of elements that are ultimately refined and probably most thoroughly expressed in Sallow. Pasolini is very concerned with the edges, edges of sexual acceptance, with, with contemporary Italian politics, 
and with cinema as an art form. It's an interesting thing to think about if you place him in the context of Italian film history. Um, there is the birth of Italian neorealism, this drive for instead of the the, the film ca- the question of what does the camera capture I think is a really important question this idea of is cinema an art that creates an artifice or is it something that creates and captures the truth you know Italian neorealist film directors would take their cameras out of studios into the streets to film working class people and factory workers because they were were acting out of the conviction that cinema was an art form that was designed to capture and portray the truth as honestly as possible. And Pasolini takes this uh, commitment to what we now call neorealism, but filters it through a very deliberate outsider's point of view, meshing together a kind of communist political economy critique, uh, Catholic iconography and background, and his transgressive view on normative sexuality. I'm really glad that you bring up the truth, because that's something that Pasolini himself was very invested in. He was interested in exploring the truth, both of his own uh, political parties and political realities of Italy, and in cinema as an art form. Uh, In this quest to find the truth, uh, Pasolini developed a long and checkered history with Italian authorities, political parties, and even potentially the Italian Mafia. To find out more about the history of Pier Paolo Pasolini, we sent John to Italy. John, are you there? Hello, hello, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, coming through loud and clear. How's how's Italy? It is uh it's a it's a beautiful country. I'm so excited to be back. Uh I have just arrived in the ancient Italian town of Vitibo, and it was here just outside of the town itself that in nineteen seventy Pier Paolo Pasolini bought uh, an ancient castle in the hills where he was working on his last novel before he died. It's very brave of you to to venture into Italy during these uncertain times in this quest for the truth about Pier Paolo Pasolini for our true crime podcast. I, I salute your efforts. Uh, it is, it is um, it's a strange time, but that doesn't make the uh, effort to find out more about what happened to Pasolini any less urgent. I couldn't agree more. And I think I think to start to start our adventure and to start our journey, we should we should ground ourselves in history like all proper investigations do. What do we know about Pasolini's trouble with the law and how he found himself in these situations? So, if we're talking about Pasolini, we're talking about an a, an artist, an outsider artist, a, a renegade who was often on the edge of Italian law. Uh he was um anti-fascist thanks to his experiences during the war. There are numerous occasions where he is censured and censored by the state, often forced to pay fines, put on trial for the work that he produces. In 
perhaps one of the earliest uh, occasions of scandal that we can talk about is Ramoscello. There was a there was a local scandal, a film festival happening in the town, and someone reported to the local police chief that uh, Pasolini had been seen in compromising situations with some of the town's young, very attractive uh, boys, and he, as a uh, as a gay man in Italy, was often uh, subject to moral panicking about uh, homosexuality and about desire. He himself said the Christian Democrats, the, the, the political powers of the time, were pulling the strings behind the police's attempts to embarrass and imprison him. Uh, in the, his artistic work as well, he was often someone who found himself on the wrong side of the law. We can talk about perhaps uh, one of his uh, earlier novels published in the mid-50s, Regatta de Vita, or literally to translate it into English, Boys of Life. Uh, its English title, I believe, is Hustlers. Uh, it's a novel that is uh, about the working class, about the poor, and it is about uh, the kind of underground class that they thought, that the Italian public thought extinct in Italy after the horrors of the war. It was extremely heavily criticized by the general public when it was first released, as was many of his films, and it was almost inevitably heavily censored by a moralistic political authority. It was indeed condemned by the government, led by the powerful Christian Democratic Party, as obscene. It also landed him in trouble with uh, the Communist Party of the time, who uh, accused it of a sense of artificiality and an absence of positive heroes. But he was a brave truth-teller who was daring to look at the sociological reality of the world that he saw around him. So that is only two instances of Pasolini finding himself on the wrong side of the law. Now, as, as I recall, there is, a, there is a lawsuit around that novel, wasn't there? And this is, this is possibly one of the earlier instances of Pasolini being, uh, his art rather, being repressed by the state. Yes, absolutely. It was, uh, as I said, it was censored on publication, uh, something that he had to put up with extensively. Um, there is another instance of that that happens just a few years later as Pasolini moves into making films through his connections with Federico Fellini and other key figures in Italian cultural politics. Uh, there is La Ricotta, or uh, its literal English translation, of course, The Ricotta, a short film, a short film that he wrote and directed in 1962, which was part of an omnibus film, uh, often credited as being the best part of that omnibus film. And again, it is a uh, a socio-political comment, deals with a film production of The Passion of Jesus, with a director who is acting like Pasolini being played by Orson Welles. <laughs> there is this there is this poor man uh, by by the name of uh, Stracci, which literally translates as rags, who is uh, working as an extra, the good thief in the passion story, who is not given any pity or mercy, and he tries everything to get something to eat, and he finally does, which is the ricotta cheese of the title, uh, and. Uh, uh, of course, the whole point of the of the short film is that the good thief who has gorged himself on ricotta cheese 
uh, is forced into a very awkward position that he, when he's being crucified, and he sadly dies of indigestion. Uh, it is a biting critique of the Roman Catholicism of Italy, which Pasolini saw as being more concerned with status and prominence than with actually helping the poor. Uh, but, despite his assertions that he, as he asserted in the famous the Gospel according to St. Matthew, that he held great respect for the Italian heritage, the Italian Christian heritage, he was accused of holding contempt for the state religion, and was sentenced to four months uh, upon conviction, which he managed to mitigate by paying a hefty fine. On appeal, the sentence was later declared void, but this was, yet again, another example of a moralistic, political and legal authority coming down on an innovative, auto-outsider artist. I think it's very interesting that you find yourself outside of uh, this, this ancient, perhaps even haunted castle once owned by Pasolini, as we discuss this conversation of Pasolini's own rather haunted past. Now, there is one final point we should talk about here, which is uh, Pasolini's final novel. Pasolini's final novel is not completed. It was uh, published posthumously called Il Petrolio, and it is uh, a novel about, uh, as you can guess from the title, it's a novel about oil companies, power companies. It is related to the death of Enrico Matti. Now, Enrico Matti was a public administrator, and he was given the task of, in the aftermath of the war, uh, dismantling the petroleum agency set up by the fascist government. Now, what happened was that this uh, agency was reorganized and reestablished and, in, and enlarged into what is called the National Fuel Trust, or to give it its Italian language acronym, the ENI. Now, the ENI became incredibly powerful. Mattei was a hugely key figure in the Christian Democrat Party in Italian politics. Uh, the ENI was known as the state within the state. Now, here we have the key moment. October 27, 1962, on a flight from the island of Sicily to Milan, Mattei was on his own jet plane, uh, Moraine Solnia MS-76, and it crashed into a small village in the region of Lombardy. Now, the cause of the accident has long been a mystery, but it is reputed that there was a bomb hidden on board. Pasolini was writing a novel about the petroleum companies of Italy uh, at a time when the Christian Democratic Party, which Mattei was strongly involved in, very influential in, uh, was becoming increasingly intolerant of left-wing activism. And, uh, of course, in Italy, Pasolini was known as an inconvenient person. He was, he was a public intellectual. He wrote some biting newspaper columns about the government. And this novel was in progress when Pasolini himself is murdered. Without lapsing into conspiracy theory, it is more than possible that the ghosts of the Christian Democratic Party still haunt that castle, haunted 
by what could have happened to Pasolini. To learn more about the connection between Pasolini and the Italian government, John flew directly to Rome. Uh, uh, John, John, how is how is Rome going? It is. Uh, it's amazing to be back in Rome. I am here on the edge of the Piazza Navona, not far from the uh, Spanish Steps, soaking up the atmosphere, um, connecting the radical history and the roots of Italian militancy in the politics of the 20th century. Uh, <laughs> uh, it is. Incredible to be back in the Eternal City in Rome, uh, a hotbed of radical politics. Italian politics has always had a radical streak that has often uh, lapsed into uh, militancy and violence. Um, it's a it's a it's a nation state with an often deeply unstable democratic and and uh, electoralist mode of politics. Known as, uh, as as many of our listeners, listeners will know, exemplified by the corruption of figures like Silvio Berlusconi, it should be no surprise then that Pasolini was plugged into the uh, radical movements of his day. Just after the war, he's warned by a priest friend that he should stay away from the communists. He should stay away from this uh, political propaganda, and he consciously self-describes himself as a as a Christian Marxist, as a someone who's deeply influenced by the Catholic heritage of Italian culture and also by the Marxist militancy of the PCI. Um, he is a uh, stern critic even of the left. Um, as this comes, this comes out in something that you uh, have done, uh, you've spoken about before, Ash, which is Pasolini's relationship to the uh, famous movement of student radicals across Europe, the 1968 uh, movement most most famous in France where it almost causes a national revolution but it was present in Italy too and Pasolini was not necessarily all that complimentary about the 68 movement is that correct yes we've been doing some research back here at home base in the Pasolini files to help elucidate uh, his often complicated understanding of Italian politics uh, the the single document that Pasolini gives us that helps us best understand his relationship to the 1968 student movements is a poem entitled The PCI to Young People. This is uh, perhaps one of Pasolini's most contentious works, even more so than Salo, depending on who you ask. In this poem, uh, Pasolini appears to defend the police, whose brutal crackdown helped repress the 1968 movement. Some key lines in the poem read, uh, Pasolini writes about the students who were protesting. You have the faces of daddy's boys. I hate you like I hate your dads. He further writes, when you and the policemen were throwing punches yesterday at Valle Guila, I was sympathizing with the policemen. He uh, went on to refer to them as the children of the poor. Pasolini in this poem elucidates his true detest for who he saw as the petty bourgeoisie. He, he saw in the faces of the policemen in Italy 
the the faces of the dispossessed working class who lacked the financial and societal privilege to attend university and build on their education. He saw in the faces of the students the the privileged petty bourgeoisie who were able to move upward through the ranks of society, build their education, and increase their own personal capital. However misguided, perhaps, this analysis was, it does inform us about Pasolini's typical scathing attitude towards politics, no matter which side you're on. Mm. Which, I think, leads us nicely into the years of lead and Operation Gladio. So the years of lead are a uh, well-known phenomenon in Italian politics. It's about a 20-year period from the 60s to the 80s of, of radical militancy, of instability, and frequently of violence. Um, it is a time that a lot of Italian people think of um, not very fondly, and it is a time that Pasolini was directly involved with. Um, perhaps the most uh, important aspect to talk about here is an infamous terrorist attack in the 12th of December 1969. At Piazza Fontana in Milan, a bomb was set off that killed 17 people, uh, 80, nearly 90 people were seriously injured. Now, who set the bomb off is, is uh, a matter that we'll get to in a moment, but almost immediately the police at the time jumped to the conclusion it was radical anarchists. One of the people who was arrested at the, in the earliest stages was Giuseppe Pino Pinelli. He was a, a railroad worker, he was an anarchist, he was a member of Ponto di Assolfel, he was a member of the uh, Milan-based anarchist associations, he was also the secretary of the Italian branch of the anarchist Black Cross. Now, Pinelli just before midnight, on the 5th of de- 15th of December, three days after the bomb goes off, Pinelli is seen to fall from his death from a fourth floor window in a Milan police station. It is initially uh, ruled a suicide, an accident, or even a suicide. Uh, but, as any of our listeners will know, one should always be suspicious and critical of anyone who is unfortunate enough to die in police custody. Pinelli was uh, was an anarchist, and the anarchists were initially blamed for the bombing, but it was the far-right, violent terrorist group Ordine Nuevo who were eventually convicted, but not until 2001, when neo-fascists sent to prison for injuring nearly 90 people and murdering almost 20 more. There were several bombs that were set off during the years of lead by this violent neo-fascist movement. Pasolini was one of the people who was uh, connected to the anarchist movement, made a documentary about what happened. Uh, And it is perfectly reasonable that he was an embarrassment to the Italian legal and political and policing systems was he killed to get him out of the way, to shut him up, and to stop him talking? Next time on The Pasolini Files, join John as he ventures through Ostia to discover what happened on that fateful night in November. Was the 1970s Italian mafia involved? What happened to the stolen footage from Pasolini's Salo? And who was the mysterious figure Pelosi 
and how are they connected to Pasolini's death? Yeah, Luna, Rossa, ma parli, this. You're a 